Welcome to Cape and Ray Hall, nestled in the beautiful landscapes between England's national parks. As a Bible school, we offer short-term courses aimed at fostering your spiritual growth and living in a community. Our historic manor house has something for everyone. You can enjoy indoor and outdoor adventures, connect with students from around the world, and learn how to deepen your relationship with Jesus Christ. Search Cape and Ray England for more information. The Profile You're listening to Premier Christian Radio Hello and welcome to The Profile here on Premier Christian Radio. I'm Sam Hells and today I'm speaking to Emma Heath, course facilitator for the recovery course which helps bring freedom from addiction. Emma, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. I wanted to start with just talking a little bit about your story. Um, There's a very good reason, of course, why you work for something called the recovery course. Um, You know what it's like to battle addiction and that started from an early age for you, didn't it? It did, yes. At about the age of 11... I um I began misbehaving around food actually. It started with anorexia, went on to bulimia. I've been through the whole spectrum of uh, food addictions and food disorders. Very young. Where did you um where did you grow up? I grew up in Somerset, a little place, a little village called Banwell, outside of Western Supermare. Um, lovely place, you know, really nice upbringing. My mother gave me absolutely everything I could wish for. She's a she was a really well respected pharmacist and um, you know my dad had left when I was tiny uh, 15 months old he left um, he worked for Guinness ironically a good family upbringing yeah well my mum gave me every, absolutely everything I could wish for she was gave us my, myself and my brother everything we could have wanted really well educated my grandparents were around obviously being a lone parent she was out at work a lot but she still would give and devote as much time as she could mm. with us we couldn't have asked for more really mm. so where do you think the the kind of problems came in what do you attribute that to well i don't blame anything i believe that there's contributing factors to making anybody you know go off the rails a bit but um there were times where i thought not having a dad around and different things like that and i was bullied at school and my brother turned to drugs at quite a young age too so you know my brother and i didn't get on very well at all actually um you know it escalated to me needing a restraining order on him at one point but you know i've been able to forgive him for that because it was all drug fueled um but i don't see there was one particular thing it was just this whole a, a deep-rooted feeling inside of not feeling good enough. And where was uh, faith at this point? Was there any kind of Christian background or upbringing? Yeah, well, my mum is a very strong Christian, and my grandparents, you know, I was brought up in a Christian home, and I we were talking about God all the time. I used to be in this, um, uh, it was called a FOG group, which was Friends of God. As kids, it was a child's group, and there were Bible studies, and we used to play football with other churches. And so I remember always being around a church environment, but as I grew up, I, I, I'll be honest, I really enjoyed the taste of communion when I got, um, you know, confirmed. And um, not that that attributed to me becoming, um, you know, dependent on alcohol, but it did. Um, I, I enjoyed that kind of the rebellious streak in me. And um, yeah, it kind of just escalated through my teenage years. Yeah. So it started with a, a problem, as you say, around food. And what kind of happened next? What did, what did that escalate into in your teenage years? 
Well, bizarrely, it was it, it felt like I could control something because I felt my life was a little out of control with the difficulty between my brother and I. And, um, you know, food was the one thing I could control by not having or having too much of. And it almost ingrained that kind of addictive nature, which um, then manifested into, um, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd go through the different food elements. But when I found alcohol, that was when my journey really kind of took off around addiction. And I, I think I was about 13 when I started drinking. Mm. And it was fun. It was, you know, sociable. And I felt I fitted in. And it also blocked out a bit of the pain I was feeling around the stuff with my brother. So Yeah. And how did that develop and and get worse over time? I mean, presumably this started kind of small social drinking and, and then escalated further? Yeah, it, it was, um, you know, a group of us that would buy, you know, cider together on the weekends. That kind of, you know, it happens a lot, you know, binge drinking at teenage years. And um, before I knew it, I was drinking a lot but I didn't really notice I had a problem with it I you know I knew I was a heavy drinker but I didn't um, think of it in a sort of alcoholic way or anything like that it wasn't until I look back on some of the decisions I made I see how alcohol really influenced my life um, so it it became more and more and more to the point when I went to university it really really took off around that whole party scene and you could almost disguise how much you drank I did really well at school and I got offered all the degrees pretty much that I wanted to do. And I remember going to Cardiff Uni and they said to me, you can do this degree, that degree. And they said like business studies and um, sports recreation. And then they said hospitality management. And they said that there was wine tasting on a Friday with that course. (laughs) And I signed up within seconds. (laughs) Amazing. So, you know, I made a four-year decision based on the fact of having a bit of a drink. Right. And you hadn't realised at that point this might be becoming a bit of a problem? Uh, No, not at all. (laughs) It was just socially acceptable. And that's the the hard thing around um, Mm. any addiction. It can be socially acceptable. And there's a very fine line before it crosses over into being, you know, problematic. And, you know, for me, I think I'd crossed that line already, but I hadn't seen it. So I used to go out at university and... Um, in being in Cardiff I got very much into the rugby and you know the Six Nations and things and I used to go out drinking with the Welsh rugby team and I you know I thought it was the best compliment ever when they told me I drank too much and um, that was just the way my life became it became a lot dominated by the drinking I liked every sport going I was involved with the cricket club the golf club the Formula One team you know groups You name it, I liked it because I could have a different group of drinking buddies. And by the time you reached university, was, was sort of church and God still a factor in your life or had that gone, gone to one side? It had gone to one side, to be honest. I mean, I've always believed, you know, I've always knew God was with me. My gosh, you know, he carried me through some pretty horrific times and, you know, um, and I, I had that ingrained belief. But the more I drank, the more further I felt I pushed sort of guard away. You're at university and um, you mentioned that you, you took this course based partly on the idea of the, of the free wine tasting. Yep. Um, what happened next? Um, I did really well at it, even though I was drinking heavily. Um, you know, I made some really good friends. It was at that time that I, you know, things with my brother had got really bad, so I couldn't actually go home to the family home for my own safety. But I, you know, I made good friends at uni and left university, had a relationship with a guy and, you know, just life kind of went on. But I realised that I was, I moved to um, a place near Portsmouth and um, I ended up realising I was drinking every evening. And, um, 
again, I didn't really see it as a massive problem. I'd work hard and then come home, have a glass of wine, which would turn into a bottle or two. Um, but before I knew it, I ended up going away to on a holiday, actually, abroad, and ended up running nightclubs in Turkey um, for a couple of years. And um, it was only when I left there after a few years and it wasn't it wasn't glamorous you know doing this it was just you know around drink all the time and it was when I was on a flight back having left a really abusive relationship actually um, and I was in a real mess like physically and emotionally but I didn't have any drink for several hours because the flight had been delayed and it was then that I realized I started having the withdrawals from alcohol and it was a really it scared me. It scared mm. me because I think deep down I knew I was a heavy drinker and that, but um, to actually have physical side effects of withdrawal was was quite shocking yeah. for me. I was reading your story and and you mentioned that at one point you were abroad and kidnapped. Is that something that happened in in Turkey? Yeah, it was. Uh, the relationship I was in, um, basically, I I lost every sense of who I was um, out there. I. Um, I felt so distant from God, um, my, you know, and my family, and um, everything that I believed in. And I think seeing a culture, and I, you know, I I love all religions and all cultures. Don't get me wrong, but it was the traditions that went hand in hand with being over there. I saw the real, real corrupt way that people were treated, especially women mm-hmm. out there. And this gentleman that I um, was in a relationship with, he'd actually been promised to a lady to be married, and I didn't know. And it all just erupted and he ended up getting very, very violent and um, locked me in my apartment. But because I was in such a state around drink, I didn't, I as long as he brought me my drink every day, right. I just stayed in there, which he'd like, like locked me in. And it was probably for about a month, hmm. you know, but it was just after that that I managed to get out of that situation and got back to Britain. Yeah. And it was on the plane that you realised, I guess, yeah. had that moment where you thought, hang on, this is this is becoming a problem, having those physical um, side effects to not drinking for a few hours. Definitely, yeah. I mean, I I remember just, I was so confused by so much that had gone on and felt so disconnected with everything. But then with this physical effect happening in my body, I I realised I was in trouble. Mm. You know, I was uh, yeah. one, of, one of the rock bottoms I've had in my life. I was going to ask you, what was the kind of rock bottom before your story flips? And of course, we're about to come to that moment where yeah. everything changed and, and, and your life took a drastically new direction. But but what was the, the final kind of rock bottom moment that, that resulted in that change? Well, I think I think for anybody in addiction, I think there can be quite a few different factors and a different, different forms of rock bottoms, which is something that's not really commonly spoke about. Because I think for me, that was probably the physical rock bottom where I actually realised... Um, you know, I did continue drinking when I got back um, and then the physical side effects probably did get worse, but the physical can be for quite a prolonged period. I've, I had a very, like an emotional and spiritual rock bottom later on in my journey, um, which was when I, I'd had years sober, but then I drank again and that was, a, that was probably the worst um, emotional and spiritual rock bottom I had because I only had one option really. Mm. Um, to get my life back on track um, but yeah I see rock bottoms as an opportunity to grab hold of you know and that's sadly where so so many people hit a rock bottom and they don't have the tools or the people around them or the resources to change and then get you know a relationship back with God yeah. whereas I've been really blessed that people have been in my path. So when you had that kind of first moment 
uh, coming back to the UK after being in Turkey and, and, and you know, that being, as you say, one of the rock bottoms, did things uh, change from that moment? Was there the kind of help to, to, for you to change direction? The thing is, I think I, I wanted to get well, but I, and I knew I needed to, but the two seemed so different. Mm-hmm. It was when the two combined together that I, it's almost like gives you that propulsion to actually start on a recovery journey. I, um, I went for years, um, literally just trying to get better, accessing services, um, not Christian services, general kind of um, services in the community. And, and um, it was almost like, you know, sort of a hamster on a wheel, just round and round. I'd get a few days, a few weeks, and then I'd be back to square one and completely baffled. And that's what they say about addiction. It's, you know, cunning, baffling and powerful. And I just, I had no tools to stay stopped that's the problem I mm. could get stopped but not stay stopped and um and I just kept going to all these different things and drinking and I remember being in a flat in Wales and um the Tesco delivery chap became my best friend because that's the only person I'd see and you know I'd, I'd put vodka into water bottles and walk around drinking them thinking no one knew but you know everybody knew you can you can tell a mile off but I just desperately wanted to get my life back on track and get my career going and it it was it was like a living hell actually you know walking around and knowing that I was deep in my heart I would promise myself I'd never do this again and then that later that day or the following day I'd be in the same state if not worse and I'd be so so upset with myself and often we see all the carnage that people do to others which I'm so passionate about helping now but also I look, I can, you know, look at Emma now and have that compassion for a person that, you know, nobody chooses to yeah. hurt people in the way they do around addiction. I've never met one person with an addiction that said, I went out to do this. Yeah. You know, we make bad choices, but, you know, don't we all? And that's the thing. It was, um, you know, I knew I needed to get well and I had great people around me who helped me get into um, a treatment centre Um, through the pharmaceutical society my mother you know in her profession they helped fund me um, for the first few weeks which was such a godsend you know yeah Um, and that's where I started back on my journey that must have been really tough especially initially I mean you already mentioned you were having physical symptoms of withdrawing so presumably when you went into recovery at least to begin with that would have been a really tough difficult process it was and I was you know I was in a real emotional wreck when I went into treatment over 10 years ago now um but I went to the most fantastic place you know I I went in I was going through a a court battle because I'd lost my driving license through drink driving and you know a lot of consequences you know I had no friends and you know I'd I'd hurt everybody around me especially like my mum um and I went into this treatment center and they just they just loved me you know, I didn't know who I was. I was so broken. You know, I didn't know what I liked, what I didn't like. But the physical side effects of withdrawing, you know, alcohol has to be kept so carefully done when you're drinking. I mean, I was drinking about two litres of vodka a day at the point where I went into treatment. You know, my whole mm. world evolved around the next bit of drink, you know. And um, to then be in a place where you haven't got that, it's frightening. Mm. But it's also, it can be physically dangerous and, the, you know, the professionals have to intervene in, in that sort of circumstance. Um, and they they were fantastic. I mean, I it was a beautiful place in Wiltshire called Cloud's House, um, which is, um, it's a great organisation. And I was there for six weeks and it took probably about 10 days to come gradually down off the medication they give you. 
Um, but I, I tell this story because it's quite funny. I um, went to this treatment centre and they had this cow field at the bottom of the field and I've got a little phobia of cows. In my way, I was muddling up my words. I was in this treatment centre and I was kept saying to everybody what I thought I was saying to people that I had a phobia of cows. I was actually telling them I had a fetish for cows. <laughs> so everyone's like looking at me like I'm really strange. <laughs> and I didn't know why. And then the fog cleared. You know, the fog cleared and I realised that, um, you That's know, funny. I was messing my words up. But but to be honest, it was the best um, the best thing that could have happened going there because right. it was a twelve step treatment centre, and um, the twelve steps originate from Alcoholics Anonymous, which was originally, you know, devised by a group of Christian people, as we know. Um, it and I understand why they started saying higher power rather than God. right. So yeah, so this is um, as you say, it was first a Christian idea, yeah. and that you could you could call on what is now termed a higher power to help you through this recovery yes. process. But but it's changed, was it? It was changed from God to to higher power. Well, I don't know if it's actually changed, but they decided to use the words higher power so right. that it was accessible, accessible to all to everyone. Sure. And obviously, it is you know millions of people access it around the world, so it it does what it was devised to do but you know what I love about you know and we'll go on to it later but the work I'm involved in it brings you know Christianity right back into the core of the 12 steps and you know I think when I went to this treatment centre and saw the 12 steps originally you know I didn't know it you know I felt why why is God done this to me you know does God love me still you know all that stuff I had a lot of questions but I'm so grateful that I was able to explore them yeah and bit by bit you know my relationship with God grew again and you know I felt his love and forgiveness and compassion and the 12 steps encapsulate all that Mm. and you know making amends to people and then living spiritually so you know I was back on a journey yeah so it was actually through through the 12 step program that um you both began your recovery and i guess rediscovered your faith at the same time i did yeah um it was a gradual process um but i'll be honest it sort of i had three or four years in recovery before i drank again um and during those three or four years i you know i started to get to know who i was a bit more but i think i put a bit more emphasis on emma rather than my faith journey actually you know it was bubbling along but Mm. I think looking back, you know, no wonder I probably drank again and things because I hadn't really got a whole grip on everything. But it's not it's not um, unusual for people who have been addicted to things for, for years to, to go through recovery and to have some sort of a relapse. Yeah. I mean, I, I wish, I always say, you know, when I say my story and everything, I wish not everyone has to have experienced a relapse. But for me, it was my journey. And for me, it was a turning point. And I believe that you can use everything for the good and, mm. you know, if you choose to. But, you know, it is, it's hard because especially around alcohol as well, it's it's everywhere. You know, it, it's not like you can switch off from it. It's yeah. socially acceptable, you know, um, you, you, you just turn a corner and it's on a billboard or it's in the, you know, people like, glamorise it, you know. Um, but then I've got nothing against alcohol, but for someone like me, it doesn't work. Yeah. Well, you know, I can think of stories of, of people in, in church. Um, for example, if your church is having a New Year's Eve party and mm-hmm. some churches will have alcohol licenses to have alcohol on the premises if it's a new building. And, and actually, you know, if you do that, there's sometimes questions need to be raised about, are you aware you might be excluding people in your congregation? So, so as you say, even in church culture, often yeah. there can be alcohol around. It's not even that church is always necessarily a sort of safe place away from that stuff. 
And I understand, you know, communion, it's different, you know, if you, if you are very clear and a lot of places I go to these days will have an alternative as well or just, you know, non-alcoholic communion. But yeah, I, I totally agree. It's it's about how we make things um, as safe as possible. And, you know, and I always say, why would people understand? Not like, It's a good thing that people don't because it means that they've lived through it or know someone that has. So when I come across people that say oh yeah we'll have alcohol at this or we'll do that I'm like well actually it's you know I, I don't look down on people that think that way it's just that they're not able to put themselves into the shoes of someone like myself and mm. thank goodness they haven't had to yeah you know the majority of my life you know apart from the last 10 years has been horrendous and I wouldn't wish that on anyone but mm. you know I just try and educate people today and yeah through my story but also through the work that I'm involved in sure. so so, so bring us up to date and tell us something of, of the, is it 10 years you, you've had since you've... Yeah, well, um, I, five years ago I drank again for two weeks and that was a really difficult period, but it was only two weeks. But actually looking back, it was, it was, I wouldn't say I needed it, but I was able to really grow from that experience. And, um, you know, I really ploughed every effort I had into um, going to God with everything and growing in my sort of spiritual journey. And... I, I mean, what what had happened in those two weeks, I'd ended up smashing my car again. I was back drinking vodka. I was, it was, I literally ended up in a police cell and um, I sat in this police cell and I knew that I had two options. You know, one was to ask for help, that be, you know, from God and friends, or go straight back to drinking the minute I got out and there's a saying in the Alcoholics Anonymous book you know a belly full of beer and a head full of AA doesn't work and once you've had sobriety it you just it was so that was the emotional sort of spiritual rock bottom I was talking about earlier and it literally was I was in bits I was just you know and I got out of there and I reached you know I cried out to God to help me and you know I had some really good people around me like my mother and different people and you know I was able to stop and then I, it was almost like I knew I wanted to just give my all to, um, you know, my spiritual journey around recovery. And I didn't know what that would look like. And goodness, mm. I hadn't expected any of what's gone on in the last five years to have happened. Um, and I kind of have to pinch myself a lot because <laughs> I can't believe it. Yeah. And I like that because it keeps me humble because, you know, people know me more than I know them now. But um, I six weeks after the um in you know the drinking episode five years was over five years ago now um my mother had a cardiac arrest in front of me a sudden cardiac arrest and um i was able I, you know i won't go on about it but i was able to do cpr on her and in that oh. moment when the paramedics took over in the most horrific moment of my life i was just praying mm. and um i was saying like the serenity prayer that's used in the fellowships over and over again and the paramedics were going to stop after six times and I looked at them and I just said, you know, please, can you do it one more time? This mm. piece fell on me and they did it one more time and her heart started and, wow. you know, she's alive to tell the tale and I've, I've been able to be a daughter to her and love her back to health. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I looked after her, she relocated here and she now runs the family work alongside the recovery course that I run. Mm. So tell us a, a bit about that now and, and you say you sort of have to pinch yourself that you you have for the last few years now been involved in in ministry and ministering to those who I guess have similar stories to the one that, that you have through through the recovery course and, and the other things you're involved in so tell us a bit about that well I believe that the biggest 
and reason that I'm doing what I'm doing is because I've I've turned everything negative into a positive and it's that blessed to be a blessing stuff and um I I I found out about this church coming to Bournemouth um and I hadn't had I didn't have a home church. I was go I was first aiding at festivals. I'd learnt to be a first aider after what happened with my mum and that was my way of keeping in touch with people, Christian folk and I'd go to Soul Survivor and First Aid and all that. And and I love that and I um I got um, speaking to a woman who told me about this church coming on. I ended up um, saying, oh, that's very nice. You know, I'd like to go to a nice, worshipful, you know, modern HGB church and keep my recovery separate. And then I got home and again, you know, I just forgot about it, to be honest. And then um, I met some people down at the beach watching the fireworks and it happened to be the team from London that had come down and they were starting the following day. So, Is it starting the um, the church yeah, plant? The church, um, H, um, St. Swithin's. St. Swithin's, the HTB mm. church plant. And I um, I thought, you know, I'm one of these people that I, God often tells me a few times before I take notice. <laughs> I think a lot of people can relate to that. Yeah. <laughs> and that's not a bad thing. It just reaffirmed that I was on the right path. So the following day, I went to um, the meeting they had, and there was like, you know, not that many people, but it was the first meeting. And I just got involved from day one. It just felt right, you know, and um, I started building up, you know, friends in the community, helping with Alpha, um, was leading a group in Alpha with another lady and um, the pastor, Tim, uh, must have seen that I was, you know, had a heart for the, the least and the lost and uh, just because I've been through it, you know, and he um, he asked me one day my story and I told him a bit like we're talking now. And we'd had a, a gentleman come and speak at the church called Nigel Skelsey, who wrote the recovery course. Um, and I really enjoyed his talk. It was, you know, really raw, really kind of, you know, no, no holes barred type thing. And um, he just asked me if I'd run the course. Mm. Um, and Susie and I, this other lady at the time, she's no longer doing it, but we ran this course. And I thought it'd be a very small, low key kind of thing. and. Over, we've run, well, I've run now five courses, looking to start another soon. Um, we've had over 600 people come, which is, we're pretty sure it's the biggest Christ-centred recovery course known wow. in the UK. I mean, it's just, it's blown my mind, you know. Mm. I, I, I work also for a local charity, but this is my, my voluntary role for the church. I became a, a ministry head for the church. I've recently been commissioned by the Bishop of Winchester, um, to do the work I'm doing, you know, it's just ironic. And I said it um, to some people yesterday, but I used to pop round my neighbours who was a vicar and pinch his wine back in the day, you <laughs> wow. know, just yeah. to feed my habit. Yeah. And now I've been invited to go to like cathedrals and yeah. be licensed in by bishops. It's like it's crazy. <laughs> what you a know. turnaround! It Amazing. really, really is. I've, uh, you know, it's a life beyond my wildest dreams, really. But it's because I'm doing it all for God and. When I see people get set free of addiction, it, you know, not just that, but then giving back to the community. And is it, I, I say to people, it's like, you know, a lot of people in the fellowships of Alcoholics Anonymous and things, they talk about a hole in the soul, you know, when they've got an addiction going on. And I just say, well, mine, for me, it's a cross-shaped hole that needed filling. And when we fill that, we're never alone. And a big part of addiction is that feeling different. So when you've got a good relationship with God, anything's possible. I'm sorry we're out of time, but that's a wonderful place to leave it, Emma. Thank you so much for sharing your story with us. You're very welcome.
You're listening to Premier Christian Radio. I'm Sam Hales. We'll be right back with another interview right after this. Premier Christianity magazine in this month's issue. Jesus died so you could be rich. Is the prosperity gospel a false gospel? Is TV's reality hit Love Island forbidden fruit or a wake-up call for Christians? And what happened when one woman set off to cycle the world and encountered God? Discover answers to these questions, plus opinions, news and much more in the August issue of Premier Christianity magazine. For your free copy, visit premierchristianity.com forward slash free sample. The Profile You're listening to Premier Christian Radio. Well, hello and welcome to The Profile here on Premier Christian Radio with me, Sam Hales. The Profile is the show where we delve into a person's life, faith and testimony. It's brought to you in association with the UK's leading Christian magazine, which I edit. It's Premier Christianity magazine. If you would like a free sample copy of our latest issue, you can go to our website, premierchristianity.com forward slash free sample. It's a monthly magazine and we're very happy to send you one free copy. So make the most of that offer, premierchristianity.com forward slash free sample. But today on The Profile here on Premier Christian Radio, I'm pleased to say I'm speaking to Neil O'Boyle. Neil is the National Director of Youth for Christ, a Christian charity reaching hundreds of thousands of young people with the gospel. Neil, welcome to the program. Thank you. It's great to have you with us and understand not only do you now head up Youth for Christ, but it was actually Youth for Christ which was very influential in you becoming a Christian. Yeah, that's right. So I'd love to hear some of your (laughs) early story and how you first encountered Christ. Okay, well, thank you. Uh, yes, I come from a, a, an unchurched home uh, where where faith really wasn't on the table. We didn't really talk about anything to do with God. Had potentially very different values. Um, and uh, yeah, so with that being my background and, and the setup in which I was, was in and raised in, uh, I lived a life where I was searching for meaning, like many, many, many young people are. Uh, you know, the two questions that we're all really wrestling with is who am I and do I matter? And, and they were absolutely at the forefront of my own thinking as a, as a teenager, which led to some uh, poor decisions. And at 16, I was uh, put into an at-risk center. Uh, and uh, after I left that place, after they let me out, um, I uh, lost all of my friends. But there was one geeky guy who just wouldn't leave me alone and was a real persistent pain uh, just turning up at our house continually wanting to see me and I remember uh, saying to my parents listen please don't let him in and my parents said listen we're getting fed up with this you need to see him and so I did I, I, I saw him and said what do you want and uh, he said well listen here's the deal you come to something with me and I'll leave you alone now I had no friends and why I was bargaining with this guy I don't know but I agreed and said okay uh, that can be the deal I, I, I stupidly didn't ask what we were going to go to I thought we might go to McDonald's or something like that. We turn up outside a church and I'm thinking, okay, maybe there's something cool in the hall. We go into the hall. It's full of young people, absolutely full of young people. But there were two people I instantly recognized and they'd been in my school. They belonged to something called You for Christ. I didn't know what that was. I just thought they were part of a cult. Uh, they talked about Jesus all the time. They just seemed weird. I didn't want to be there at that point, <laughs> but I knew the deal. And so I sat through what was... For me, quite a painful experience because just these freaky Christians who just seemed so happy and it was just so a million miles from where I was at. Um, 
and someone got up and preached and I didn't understand anything. Literally, I couldn't. It was just a different language. And uh, then came that classic line that we all know. If there's anyone here tonight who doesn't know Jesus, the Lord and Savior, then they can do so. And I sat there thinking, what does that mean? I had no idea what that sentence meant at all. But there was something about it that grabbed me. And I remember saying, literally saying, okay, God, if you exist, you can take my stupid, pathetic life. Because if you don't, I know I will. That's how dark life had got for me. And um, yeah, as soon as I prayed that, uh, the message had gone up, it'd been received and responded to. And I knew that I was experiencing whoever I just communicated with right there in that moment. And I left a totally different person. Wow. Reason for that being, of course, that Jesus said, I've come to heal the broken heart, set the captives free, release the oppressed. And that is exactly what he did in that moment in my life. I've come to bring life and life in all its fullness. And that's what has happened. I left there totally different. Uh, now absolutely in love with this person called Jesus, who I just didn't know before I'd walked in that building. And yeah, yeah. That, that, that's the impact you for Christ had on me. Wow. And this was you growing up in the north of England? Yeah, correct. So you had this amazing uh, encounter experience with God at a, v- a very young age. And what's remarkable is since that happening, it seems like I think you've been in Youth for Christ kind of ever since, haven't you? Your whole life you've been um, in one way or another working for Youth for Christ. Yes, yes. So uh, almost. So as soon as I, uh, I left school and um, went on to college, trained as a PE teacher, and then after that, I did an intern with Youth for Christ and got married, uh, didn't have a job. My and you wife met your was, wife in Youth for I, Christ. I, I did. Look, you know more than anyone. <laughs> this is really impressive. So I did. I met Joy. She was, and, and Joy, my wife, had been praying for me before I'd even gone to that Youth for Christ event. She'd heard about me uh, through this friend of mine who, who was very persistent. And uh, so she'd been praying for me even before I turned up. And so, yeah, but we, we met through that started dating. She moved to London to become a nurse. And uh, I got married, uh, went to London where I didn't have a job. Youth for Christ said, you know what, we can't pay you anything. But if you want to start a Youth for Christ center, you can. So I thought, well, I really have nothing to do. So that is what I'll do. Mm. And started yeah. Greenwich Youth for Christ. I think a lot of people will know of Youth for Christ. Um, I understand there's even a connection to the late, great Billy Graham. Oh, absolutely. So, so Billy Graham was the really the, the founder of Youth for Christ. Well, the founder was a man called Tory Johnson in the States, but Billy Graham was the first youth worker and he came over to Britain in 1946. Yeah. And off the back of a number of rallies, he started Youth for Christ in yeah. Birmingham. I think most people will, will kind of have some some understanding of, of Youth for Christ or YFC and say, okay, it's, you know, Billy Graham is involved in the founding and obviously you're involved in evangelism with young people. That's probably as far as it goes for a lot of people. So do you want to unpack a little bit more about what Youth for Christ is at the moment? Yes. As an organization, we're committed to two things. We're committed to young people and taking the good news. Uh, and that is our single focus. We uh, are absolutely about partnership with the local church. We want to empower the local church to be more effective in their outreach to young people. But our single focus is to take the good news of Jesus to young people. Mm. And you've done that all over the world, which is uh-huh. amazing. Look at the list of places you've been and ministering in, in parts of the Middle East, um, in Asia. You're now obviously based in, in the UK. So tell me a little bit about that time in kind of North Africa, Middle East. What took you out to that part of the world and what were you doing out there? Yeah, so I was out there as a training director for Youth for Christ International. Um, and so I did an awful lot of my time and work working with the persecuted church for people who, who, who their faith uh, is a challenge, where freedom is an issue, where they don't have the ability to talk freely about their faith. 
Uh, and so really my role was to, to train them up in youth ministry. But I've got to tell you, so many times I turned up and would be working with them and I thought, I have got nothing to give. Uh, I've got everything to learn. And I just wanted to continually sit down and listen to their stories, to be inspired by what's going on in their situations and their lives. Uh, so my role was very minimal mm. in their own journeys. Yeah, I mean, you can only imagine, can't you, how how you kind of relate to somebody who might have experienced some kind of persecution persecution for being a christian and you're there in a sort of training scenario on how to help someone who you know their life could be in danger for sharing the gospel and you're there to to encourage them to share the gospel i mean that must have been quite a difficult thing to get your head around it was very difficult it was also incredibly humbling to to be in that environment Uh, i remember with one particular country that we were well actually i never went into that country we would fly them out literally uh, for their safety more than mine because they follow the source they want to know who you're going to see so the authorities follow you so we flew them out and i remember just before going into the room with this particular group of people who, who were all Christians, being told by uh, the organizer, listen, uh, let me introduce you to who you're going to see in there. Your translator today uh, is now living in Canada because he found, uh, sorry, as he was walking towards his car, his, his car blew up, there was a bomb, so he's now running for his, his very life and he's hiding. Uh, the, the girl over there, her dad was recently killed as a martyr, the guy next to her. He, he, his back has just been totally disfigured from, perse- from, from torture. And then literally just went around the room describing everyone. And I was just so incredibly humble. And then he said, anyone that I've not introduced to you, well, they're informers. And so just be careful and be aware of that. Um, and so I, that was really difficult for me to get my head around how you could literally have informers in the same room. Uh, and I remember sharing and teaching and then asking if there were any questions. And at the end of it, uh, just one hand went up. And, and the, the question was this, uh, what is your name? Say it slowly and spell it. So I immediately knew who was asking that question. But afterwards, I said, could, could you explain this to me? How can you have informers in the room with us uh, in what really is a secret gathering? And they said, well, listen, we're all encouraged to be able to share on what's going on. We have to tell about what's going on. And therefore, we we, we decide who that's going to be. And we get very creative about what we're going to share. We don't lie, but we're just really careful. And so that's their role this week. Wow. So they're just they're careful about what they say because they know there are people in the room informing potentially informing on to the authorities Absolutely. on what Christians are doing. Absolutely. And you find yourself in a room like that. What, what an incredible... Well, yeah, but they themselves, the Christians, have to be part of the informing. So, so they work it out. How are we going to do this? So uh, how long were you uh, ministering in that part of the world for? Well, I've worked with the persecuted church. Uh, uh, I lived in three countries in that particular mm. period of time, but over a 15-year period. Mm. And was it after that that you then moved to Asia? Yes, yes. So I was the, uh, the the area director for Asia Pacific Youth of Christ. Our ministry started literally from Afghanistan, went right over across to Fiji with everything in between, including India and China. So it was quite a, a large area that, that we covered. Uh, we had about 30 Youth of Christ uh, nations in those particular uh, in, in that particular part of the world. And, and my role was to, to encourage our, our, our ministries, but also to develop new ministries. And we mm. did. We, we got things going in some really exciting places. Mm. And in those moments, is this a case of you uh, sharing the gospel with young people or is it a case of training young people to share the gospel with others or, or a bit of both? 
And so it's, it's about our mission and it's about making sure the mission of Youth for Christ is fulfilled. And um, so, so the role is to develop youth ministries that will do exactly that. Uh, so, for example, it would be working alongside India Youth for Christ, which is ginormous. It's a massive ministry in India uh, and they're doing a great job and you just let them get on with it. Mm. Or, or it's about starting Youth for Christ in some, uh, uh, let's say, for example, Central Asia, where, where actually there hasn't been a ministry um, and we now have Youth for Christ in all of the countries in Central Asia, wow. which is which is very exciting. How would you describe some of the lessons that you've learned as you've travelled around the world and you've come, you're back now in the UK? What are some of the things you've learned from Christians in other parts of the world that you think should inform how Christians in this country behave? Perhaps things that we could do differently or things we should be inspired by for Christian experience in other places? I think... There are a whole lot of things that, that, that I'd say I would have learned or, or I'm continuing to, to, to learn. But I think um, not being ashamed of the gospel is, is number one and to be courageous uh, with that, but not to be uh, uh, stupid at the same time to be sensible in the risks that you take, knowing that the Holy Spirit is leading and, and guiding you. And when he's not, to keep quiet uh, and to literally act on his leading. Um, and I've seen that played out so many times. I've experienced that, but I've watched it at play many, many times. I, I know one of the distinctions about YFC is that everyone who works for you will be asked to um, fundraise for half of their salary, which is quite quite a task, I imagine, yourself included. You know, half of your salary will be through you you fundraising. Where did that idea kind of come from and what have been the challenges in, in working that one out? <laughs> well, I've no idea where it came from. Uh, that, that, that predates me. Uh, but the, the, the reason behind that is so that we all share in the mission, so that we have ownership on the mission, so that we really are invested in it. Um, and so, yeah, there, there is a burden piece. We recognize that. And it, it's a nightmare to, to, to recruit because you've got to say to people, <laughs> listen, great that you want yeah. the job, but you've got to raise half your salary. Now, just to, just to clarify, if someone doesn't raise half their salary, they still get their salary. Right. We just want them to really own uh, part of this mission with yeah. us and the burden of the financial uh, uh, responsibilities that we have to undertake to, to carry something like Youth for Christ, which is financially, yeah, it's quite draining. Yeah. Well, I, I imagine maybe there are some similar crossovers with evangelism and fundraising. I mean, both an evangelist and a fundraiser is trying to convince someone, trying to persuade someone either to turn to Christ or to, to hand over some cash. So, so maybe Gosh. there are some similarities there or, or is it not that simple? And is it actually no, a completely no, different no. skill set? I think uh, it's not that simple, no, because it's about the vision, isn't it? So, so when it comes to fundraisers, we're sharing the vision. The vision is about seeing young people's lives changed by Jesus. So if that excites you and you want to get behind that, then please do fundraise. Our supporters in that task, but evangelism—it's about literally presenting the gospel, knowing that Jesus can change your mm. life. Is there not a bit of convincing that happens at the same time? I mean, you're, you present the gospel, the truth of the gospel, but you then have to persuade someone to believe it, don't you? No, we don't do that at all. That's the Holy Spirit, um, and so so our role in this—and this is a—it's a really good point you're making because we have some very very gifted communicators, but I would take average communicators every single day who are connected to the vine who are literally connected to Jesus and the fruit of Jesus is just clearly evident in their lives because it's about the Holy Spirit working through individuals and that's where the real long-lasting impact comes to our staff who just deeply love Jesus and are connected to him and the fruits are evident and at work and you see it as they share the mm. gospel lives are changed you can have a brilliant communicator give a, a very clever and clear message with no lasting impact 
account. We want to see uh, lives changed by Jesus and we want to see Jesus working in and through our staff. Sure. Ideally, though, wouldn't, wouldn't you want both? You'd want someone who's connected to the vine, who's connected with Jesus, but also is a, is a good communicator and a good persuader. Yeah, no, absolutely. And we do have that at Eve Christ. We are some uh, very gifted evangelists, for sure. But, but, but they know that character comes before competence if you're going to work for you for Christ. Tell me um, some more about YFC's work with young offenders. This is something you do that people may not be aware of. We do. So we work in a number of prisons across this country uh, and we work with other organisations doing training for them so that they can be effective in their own outreach in prisons. And uh, we, we have a, a number of staff who that is their job every single day. They're in a prison contact sharing Jesus. We do life skill training, but we also do chapel. And uh, we are quite deliberate about the fact that we are Christians. We love Jesus and we believe that Jesus can bring hope into the darkest of situations. And we see that playing out continually. We see and hear about young people's lives who had just literally been transformed mm. um, we had one guy who was just a real hardened guy who was in for a long time and um, he, he, he made a decision to follow Jesus and he was just so passionate about his new faith that he just went from cell to cell to cell just telling everyone about Jesus and so they, they renamed him and they called him Jesus uh, when he was eventually let out uh, it's really interesting because when he was eventually let out his, his parole officer said listen the most important thing we can do for you is to get you a job if you don't get a job your chances of reoffending are much greater and so he said okay and they did they got him a job and he turned around and said I'm really sorry I can't take that job and they said why he said well because it requires me to work on a Sunday and I'm a Christian and I want to go to church on a Sunday and so they said well then it's over to you we've done our bit that's your problem so he said okay uh, he did get a job it didn't require him to work on a Sunday he goes to church every Sunday he's just recently been baptized and this guy is just so in love with Jesus and we just see our, our, our staff taking the good news and bringing hope and seeing lives change on a continual basis in fact one of them called Mick who who is just a real rough and ready you for Christ worker in a prison context was passionately sharing sharing the gospel in chapel uh, and as he's sharing he does an appeal in a classic way and unbeknown to him at the time two prison guards hear that message and give their lives to Jesus. You do hear some amazing stories I think particularly of things like Alpha in prisons you kind of hear sometimes secondhand thirdhand stories of wow there's some really exciting things going on um, but you don't always get the details like the story you just shared. How much of this is a kind of good news story that isn't being talked about? Yeah, so, so, so we, we do have the right to be able to take and share the gospel and a, a prisoner has the right to be able to express their faith. And so it's in that context that we do that. Now, we do other things as well, such as life skill training, which we talked about. And that often dovetails into we meet uh, young offenders in that context and then they, you know, they like our staff and want to come to chapel and hear about the gospel or a Bible study. Um, and so, so, you know, metaphorically, the doors are somewhat open. You have to be careful and you have to be responsible and you have to have a good relationship with the governor in the prison. Um, should, should you not, then the door will close very quickly mm. on you. Um, and I think we strike that balance really well. Uh, and and we, we take that, you know, with real yeah. responsibility. I imagine there's a lot of wisdom needed in not just that, perhaps uh, schools work as well, where you're, where you're working with different authorities and uh, they will welcome you in. But at the same time, you have to be respectful of the kind of guidelines and even laws surrounding what you can Absolutely. and can't say to young people. Absolutely. Um, so, so give me a bit of an insight into how that kind of works and some of those decisions. Yes, so I would say the majority of what Youth for Christ does at our centre levels, we have 70 plus centres across this country, uh, would, would mainly be in schools, not all of it is schools work, but, but a good chunk of it is, where, where schools literally welcome us with open arms. Um, one of the challenges that a lot of schools have is, is literally the teaching of Christianity uh, under Ofsted, 
one of the one of the areas where where, where things really are a struggle is is in the teaching of Christianity, mm-hmm. and so often outside groups and churches are asked to come in and to help, and so we we willingly do that. We do many many other things in the schools as well, but that that is one of the things that we do. Uh, in fact, there's one school in the north of England, ninety eight percent Muslims was struggling uh, to, to, to meet the requirements of Ofsted when it came to the teaching of Christianity. The teacher himself didn't really understand Christianity, asked us to come in, speak about the Good Samaritan. It was a lesson, talk about our perspective of a God of love. We did that. Uh, off the back of that, he said, listen, uh, uh, the only thing I've got to go off is something called Our Request, which is a website about uh, uh, Christianity, and it's set around the curriculum. He said, I don't know who does that. And a youth for Christ staff worker said, well, we do that. That's our website. And he said, really? He said, listen, I'd love you to come back into this school. Uh, and so we did. We established a relationship with that school, 98% Muslim. Um, uh, so much so that our Youth for Christ staff worker was invited to be a governor, the only Christian uh, part of the governor team. Um, and very recently, that school has just won an outstanding award by the Church of England for the teaching of Christianity. You mentioned that it's 98% Muslim, and this is something I wanted to ask you about. Um, some would argue that the church in this country is not very well equipped at all at the moment for specifically reaching out to Muslims and how that might require a different kind of evangelism to, to for example, ministering to an atheist or witnessing to uh, someone of another religion. So how well equipped do you think the average Christian is at the moment for dealing with the kinds of objections that Muslims will have to the Christian faith? Yeah, I think I think I think it's a really good point. I think we do struggle. I think if I'm really honest, like I go back to that event that I went to a Youth for Christ event in uh, uh, 1988, where I heard the gospel proclaimed um, and, and thought, what is this language they're talking? So even among Christians to, 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 to you know, we, we struggle with our own vocabulary. Um, so when it comes to other faiths and yeah, we probably really, really struggle. But I think uh, my own experience of living overseas, particularly in, in, in a cross-cultural experience, mm-hmm. has been it's about relationships. It's about authenticity. It's about, it's about getting to know people and for them to, to see that something different about you, for that to be the conversation starter. You know, the commonality, though, is faith. So, so people of other faiths are not close to what we got to say. Actually, that is the thing that's going to draw us together. It's when you get into apologetics, which actually becomes really unhelpful, I think, one-on-one, because that, that, then each party is just defending their own perspective and they're not really listening mm. to the other. So I think it's about genuine relationships where they can see prayers being answered and at work and God yeah. at work in your life. You say apologetics is unhelpful. Well, I'm not saying apologetics is unhelpful in its own right. I think when you when you have a gathering and someone like Ravi Zachariah turns up, um, you know, or even here with, with, with Ruth Jackson, who's an amazing apologist, actually, uh, your, your, your editor for Youth and Children's magazine. Um, I think when people listen to two people discussing different mm. perspectives, that's very different and incredibly effective. What I'm saying is one on one, it can become uh, unproductive. What well, can become a sort of shouting it match? It becomes an argument people. quite yeah. often. Yeah, but isn't all apologetics a bit of an argument? I mean, even on the sort of large scale where you've got particularly um, gifted apologists, a lot of the stuff they do in debate format, it is an argument. Isn't yeah, it? but the audience doesn't have to defend their views where the person on the stage does, or mm. one-on-one you're defending your views. Mm. Um, but but do I believe in apologetics? Absolutely, mm. of course I do. Not yeah. every, I ask you, not everyone yeah, does. Yeah, That's yeah, why no, I bring it up. No, I, I definitely do. Uh, and, and we need people who are going to be able to answer really difficult questions. Mm. Completely, absolutely. I guess for you, you just place the emphasis a little bit more on building a 
building a personal relationship with someone is the kind of starting point before worrying about the tough questions. Yeah, and the tough questions come. And so our staff need to be equipped and our volunteers need to be able to quit to, to answer those questions. Mm. But they need to be born most of the time out of relationship. I know the other thing you're really uh, passionate about, um, I think you wrote about this for Youth and Children's Work magazine. You mentioned the editor, Ruth Jackson. I mm. um, think what you were specifically addressing in this article was the idea of sugarcoating the gospel, um, that sometimes uh, we're a little bit reluctant to be bold and to be brave, um, Perhaps again in this country, many Christians then they're not so uh, so bold when it comes to doing those things. So, so talk a bit more about that and how we can overcome. I think a lot of fear from some Christians to want to step out in some of these things. Well, I think I think so. I lived overseas for eighteen years. When I came back, I noticed two significant differences. One was the way we do discipleship, um, and then the second one was that we'd stop talking about. Jesus and we'd moved away from evangelism to mission the mission being much more about demonstrating Jesus but in our demonstration and doing acts of kindness and engaging with our communities we're still not necessarily talking about who Jesus is Mm. and so for me it's about bringing the two together evangelism mission demonstrating and declaring they need to go together Um, and I think that's really at the heart of what 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 I was addressing there is that we shouldn't just be doing great acts of kindness in our community and our community has no idea who we are we actually you need to be able to say, well, you know, the reason that motivates me is is my love for Jesus. Mm. It is an interesting trend, the kind of the social action um, trend within the church that I think we've seen over the last 10 years, maybe a bit more than that now. Um, things like food banks, street pastors, all of these good works that Christians are doing, they're mm. all relatively new, aren't they? Even the kind of debt advice that a lot of churches will offer. Which is great. Um, how, but, but this is the question more and more Christians are asking is it's great that we're perhaps increasingly known for these things, but are we getting across our distinct beliefs? Are we getting across the gospel through our words as much as our actions? Mm. Perhaps it's easier to show God's love through actions than it is words. Yeah, of course it is. And, I, and I'm not saying we shouldn't. And we absolutely should be about demonstrating Jesus. And we should be about helping our communities. And there's a report about to come out by Barna that, that, that actually explores just that and how the, 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 the community views the church and, and, and its relevance. And we need to be relevant. We absolutely do. But we also have a message. We have a message that brings about transformation. We have a message which has an eternal ramification. And we need not to hide behind uh, demonstrating. We need to be declaring as well. Now, I'm not saying we stand on street corners. I'm not saying that at all. I'm simply saying we need to be a little bolder in bringing Jesus into our conversations Mm. because Jesus is the one who brings change and transformation. So, So what are the most common objections that you hear amongst young people to the gospel? No, I don't think there is. I, I think the real interesting thing right now uh, is that he's simply not on the agenda. So it's not that there's an objection. It's, you know, who is Jesus really now is the question. Mm-hmm. When I was growing up, I knew who Jesus was. Now he's like, you know, he's somehow related to, 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 to Gandhi in some way or other. You know, he's, he's an important guy. But who's Gandhi? No idea who Gandhi is. Who's Jesus? No idea who Jesus is. And so, you know, 32% of young people off our own research, Gen Z Rethinking Culture, uh, 32% of young people declare that they believe in God. Now, when we really delved into the stats and the, uh, and the reading behind that, what it, what it really told us that for, the, for the remaining young people, it wasn't that they didn't believe in God. It wasn't that they were atheists. It's simply that God wasn't on the agenda. Mm. It's just not at the forefront of their thinking. This is really that because is because there's just so many distractions nowadays for young people that they just don't ask the big questions. Yeah, possibly. But I think this is also the first truly post-Christian generation that we've seen. So this is a generation of young people who, who have literally never been brought up in a church culture. Is there, does that come with positives, though? Because it means there aren't any wrong understandings or misunderstandings that we'd have to unpick like perhaps we used to have to. 
I think your starting point's different. So that's 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 the difference. Yes. So so they really don't have uh, preconceived ideas. Um, uh, for many, if they if they if they're raising a church school, then that's slightly different. Um, but you know, and again, I go back to to the teaching of RE, and I just applaud RE teachers. But it's a very very difficult task to effectively be able to communicate Christianity in a relevant manner mm. in a classroom setting. So, what tends to happen if if that isn't being done? What is the kind of teaching that typically? I comes think across? I think it is being done, but it's curriculum based. Um, and so, I think for us, it's about introducing people to to a, to a life faith that works um and that's that's of course our message mm. i want to put a kind of scenario to you which is a, a real one that i heard i've obviously changed some of the details um but this was a church that was putting on um, an outreach event to young people at christmas time and um so the christian young people invited their non-christian friends to a, a christmas party was basically what the church said mm. it was okay. and so people came along to a christmas party um and and uh, one muslim girl was was there during this christmas party they kind of stopped the party elements and did a, a 20 or 30 minute talk evangelistic talk on why you need to repent why jesus is the only way to god mentioned hell topics that obviously made some non-christians in the room quite uncomfortable and it was sort of debated afterwards in this church well hang on i thought this was a christmas party and did we not invite people to one thing and they're expecting a party and they kind of got another and this split opinion because you'll have those who say well you know the gospel is offensive and actually we've got to share the gospel with non-christians and this was a good way of doing it and you have mm. others who say well this felt slightly wrong in that they were coming from one thing and got another and i don't think this is a kind of isolated example i think many churches have done this many churches would disagree with that approach many would agree in that sort of a, of a scenario you know what's the right way forward for for christians in seeking to reach out is that an appropriate way of sharing our faith yes great question so i don't i'm not familiar with that particular case sure um, and it's it's slightly hypothetical i've okay. changed some of the details right, right. but i think generally this is the sort of approach some churches will take and i think our answer is that we need to be transparent so if we're running events let's be clear about what we're trying to achieve and let's not surprise our guests um if we are going to to give a message let's tell them that's gonna happen mm. uh so so be clear about it be relevant that sounds like a really bad gear change to me uh but but i wasn't there so yeah, i can't speak sure. into that but you think that you know that we should always say with our kind of promotional activity up front beforehand this is a Christmas party. There'll also be a short talk about the Christian faith. Yeah, I think yeah. that I think that's totally acceptable. Yeah, it's interesting though, isn't it? Because I, you know, I think the pushback on that will be people saying, "But if you if you put that on the literature, no one will turn up." And some people feel like we have to use a bit of a cloak and dagger effect. Otherwise, I've never been any non-Christians. Well, the I room. think the question is what got them there in the first place. So, so you putting a poster outside a building isn't going to do it. It's going to be the relationships that have already been established. Mm -hmm. So that's really the more important journey is that the individual is bringing them there far more than what actually happens in that building. Uh, what, what needs to make sure, what we need to make sure is that what we communicate in that building isn't going to drive a wedge between that relationship that the Christian has with the, with the non-church Christian. That's important mm -hmm. and we need to preserve that and encourage that. Mm -hmm. There are Christians who've uh, sat where you're sitting right now and done interviews with us here at Premier, and uh, they've spoken very excitedly and very passionate that they believe that revival is coming to this country and um, that the, the tide is kind of going to turn. Um, is that Would you sort of back that sort of view? Is that something you feel that, uh, that, that could be on the way? I don't know is my, is my honest answer to that question. Uh, but am I seeing 
some interesting trends. Yeah, I am. And we as an organization are, you know, the message, another great organization with their hire tour in, in the Midlands. They had 3,000 young people turn up to hear the message. That's incredible. Uh, we are seeing our own events. Uh, lots of unchurched people turn up for it. But are we seeing revival? No, we're not seeing revival. Are people responding to the gospel? Yes, they are. Is it harder than it has been in the past? I would say it is. Mm. But the opportunities are still there. This country is amazing. I've worked in places where we don't have the freedom we have. Mm. We need to be respectful about the freedom we've got. And we need to be relevant in how we communicate. But it's there for us to be able to express our faith. It's there for us to be able to say, you know what? To a secular society, we have the right to put God back on the agenda. We have the right to talk about issues of faith. So let's do that. Well, Neil, it's been fascinating to to chat. Um, Just before I leave you, I'd love to hear what are your future plans for YFC? Well, we have a number. Uh, I have a team that just come up with ideas every single day. It's crazy. They're just so (laughs) creative. Uh, So we're really going to push into the digital. And we have a a campaign where we hope to be able to reach a million young people uh, by using the digital in this country. So it'll have wider ramifications because the digital world is without borders. So that's going to be exciting. But for, for, for young people in Britain, we want to push into families because we recognize actually every year at holiday clubs, people hear the gospel, children hear the gospel, make decisions. Uh, and then they go back into their households who, who are unchurched and what happens. We want to bridge that and make mm. a connection there that is relevant and long lasting. Um, uh, we got all sorts of plans when it comes to our schools work about how we can be more effective. And where can people go if they want to find out more or support what you're doing? Great. They can go to yc.co.uk. Wonderful. Well, Neil O'Boyle, thank you so much for joining us today on The Profile. It's been great to have you. Brilliant. Thank you. That was my interview with Neil O'Boyle from Youth for Christ. If you'd like to hear more great interviews with Christians from all walks of life, why not check out The Profile podcast? Just search for The Profile on your podcast provider or visit premierchristianradio.com forward slash The Profile. And if you are currently listening to this as a podcast, we'd really appreciate it if you would give us a rating and a review again wherever you found this podcast. That would really help us out. Before we go, a final reminder that this show is brought to you in association with the UK's leading Christian magazine. It's Premier Christianity magazine. And if you would like a free sample copy of our latest edition, which features a cover story on the prosperity gospel and a culture column on Love Island, then why not head to premierchristianity.com forward slash free sample. Simply type your details in and we will happily send you a copy of the latest issue completely free of charge. Just time left to thank you once again for joining us on The Profile here on Premier Christian Radio. It's been great to have you with us. We will be back at the same time next week.